Welcome, one and all, to Club Soderberg, the cult in which three victims of Stockholm Syndrome only watch movies directed by Steven Soderberg <laughs> and then only talk about movies by Steven Soderberg forevermore. <laughs> Come join us. The rewards are many. I'm Maggie Scott. I'm the host for today's episode and I welcome my fellow cult members, Carla. Hi. And Jesse. Hello. So today's films are Ocean's Eleven, which was shot in 2001, and Full Frontal, 2002. Um, and a few episodes ago now, Jesse just um, talked about Out of Sight as being Steven Soderbergh giving the people cupcakes. And I'm here to tell you that Ocean's Eleven is pretty much the crystal gold, gold leaf truffle drivel, drizzled crockenbush of <laughs> Steven Soderbergh's career. Afterwards, we'll have a dirty little aperitif to muddy up the palette with Full Frontal, which is a low-budget um, film, which is sort of Steven Soderbergh's uh, attempt to follow a Dogma 95 uh, manifesto, and it's his first film in digital video too. So for now, take it away, Carla, with Ocean's Eleven. You're going to steal from Terry Benedict. You better goddamn know. This sort of thing used to be civilized. You'd hit a guy, he'd whack you done. But with Benedict, at the end of this, he better not know you're involved, not know your names or think you're dead because he'll kill you. And then he'll go to work on you. That's why we have to be very careful, very precise, mm. well-funded. Yeah. You got to be nuts, too. Yeah, okay, yes, I think we are firmly entering one for me, one for you territory for the next, I think, forever, um, with Ocean's Eleven beginning that one for me, one for you period. So it's a movie that barely needs an introduction. Well, yes, it's our director's biggest unequivocal commercial smash hit. Ocean's Eleven, starring a gargantuan cast of Hollywood royalty, was the fifth highest grossing film for 2001, making $450 million at the box office. I'm sure that writes the, uh, <laughs> writes the tally. Starring George Clooney as Danny Ocean, another Soderbergh bad boy fresh out of the clink and onto his next caper, Ocean is a high-stakes thief and immediately begins pulling together his selected crew of tradesmen. The mission, robbing three casinos in Vegas all on the same night. But, well, of course, it's also about a girl, and not just any girl, Julia Roberts as Ocean's ex-wife, Tess. Tess is now married to Terry Benedict, yes of the opening quote, and said owner of casinos about to be robbed. It's a get the girl, get the money, look fucking fabulous in a Versace tuxedo and get the fuck out of there kind of caper. Clooney in peak butter wouldn't melt in his mouth scheming mode, combined with Brad Pitt as his right-hand man, Rusty Ryan, it's two wrongs making a right. It works, somehow it works. Ocean's Eleven is slick, it never misses a beat. In a lot of ways, it's a perfect film. Nothing is out of place, no shot wasted. Oddly, with such a large cast, no one tries to outperform each other, but I just can't help but feel this film is too neat. It all wraps up too perfectly. The caper comes off without a hitch. Everyone gets what they want in the end without a hair out of place. Even with Elliot Gould, Bear Daddy, Dreamboat in a Versace dressing gown, I ultimately found this movie pretty dull and its gender politics pretty off. What do you think, ladies? Do you think Ocean should have gotten the girl? Or do you think Tess should have attempted to run off into the sunset with the money like so many other female Soderbergh protagonists? 
Well, it's interesting because I my memories of this film um, from seeing it at the time was that I didn't, you know, I didn't love it, but I remember it being really sparkling and kind of um, upbeat and kind of fun and really enjoying it and just sort of, yeah, like you say, the, you know, the croak and bush of his career. Um, <laughs> And then watching it this time around, I found it so boring and hard going. And, and like the first two thirds, I was just struggling to pay attention. Didn't care about the storyline at all. Um, and then in the final third, it really starts to become more gripping and, and for me anyway, more entertaining. And I sort of really kind of got hooked into it at the end. But I, I think that there's a lot of things about this film that have dated, um, aesthetics-wise, gender politics-wise, it's awful, which we can talk about more later. But, yeah, I actually actually think that, um, yeah, I found it boring. Mm, me too. <laughs> I was quite shocked. I was, like, falling asleep all the way through it. And <laughs> I think the only interesting bits for me were um, some of the characters. I really liked Carl Reiner's character. Yeah. Um, and I liked the mechanics of the heist yeah. You know, that's kind of very watchable and very kind of like, ooh, you know. So yeah, the that music was fun. that goes with it, it's just very fun, mm. easy to watch. But I just, I don't know, especially the leads like Brad Pitt and Matt Damon just make me want to die with boredom. <laughs> 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 Matt Damon, oh. I can't even, you know, like. Just he was terrible. Can't focus this. on him. <laughs> Something about him. Just... I quite like Matt Damon. but I, I just... like Matt Damon as well. Yeah. As I mean, an actor, I'm not, I'm jury's out as a person. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he didn't. Yeah, it was a bit of a boring character. Yeah, but do you, going back to my question, do you find it quite odd because in all of the heist films or crime films previously, the woman has been, even though an incidental character or a much smaller character, been you know this really interesting, strong pivot of morality for the main protagonist, but she gets her own in the end, and I found it really weird. It just felt like such a such an, an, a weird thing for him to do with this film that it goes against everything that has come previously, especially with Erin Brockovich, as we've just covered. I just don't understand why this, she was just this insipid... She has Stockholm Syndrome. You yeah, talk about yeah. Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, she just I gives think... up her career as a, as a you know, curator yeah. in Las Vegas, <laughs> yeah. as you do. To go from one shithead yeah. to another. Yeah. 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 Oh, it was completely – it was totally unbelievable. Her character, it was like, well, what's her motivation here? Yeah. Like none of – neither of these guys are particularly interesting or attractive or, you know, like for someone like her and she was incredibly passive. Mm. Yeah. She was almost like a throwback to her pretty woman role. Like it was just mm. – you know, we've seen what she can do in Erin Brockovich and then in this role she's just like this wet fish who just sits there and goes, oh, okay, he won, so I'll go with him. Yeah. yeah. It was really disappointing. And the whole get the girl thing is just so ridiculous. Yeah, I mean yeah. if she had more if she had more to her personality, then also you would see why he wanted her back. You yeah. know what I mean? Like there was no motivation for him either. Like <laughs> the the female character just seemed like an afterthought. Like, oh fuck, we've got eleven so people many men. in it's this a sausage heist. Fest. <laughs> possibly <laughs> or possibly a throwback to the original movie, which was from the fifties. Ah, yes. From we the fifties or sixties. And I think that possibly, you know, it was just inherited from that and not updated. Yeah, has yeah. anyone seen the old Ocean? No, no. no. Andrew has seen it and he says it's terrible. They um, break out into song a lot. And, <laughs> it's and a musical. It's a musical. It's got uh, Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, you know, okay. all those kind of guys. And yeah, okay. I'd like to see it just to, you know. It's kind of an interesting – I did read about it and I thought it was an interesting counterpoint to this film that in 
the original, they're his old war buddies. Yeah. So the film comes sort of like it's, you know, 15 years after the Second World War and he's like reassembling his, you know, this group of um, yeah. vets who, yeah. who he fought with. So that sort of ha- – there's a real statement there about um, masculinity in the 60s that mm-hmm. these men have been kind of been languishing and now they're coming back together yeah. to like prove well, that's their usefulness. The, that's to- the highest um, genre is all about misfits mm. in society – um, and usually they're sort of coming up against it's sort of like a Robin Hood narrative almost, yeah. like coming up yeah. against Getting a theirs. big power, yeah. a rich asshole, whatever it is, and, you know, gang, you know, and, but they don't fit into society, but yeah. together they can use their special skills and so collaborate. So in this film, by contrast, if that's the, the concept of the, maybe this was the problem with Ocean's Eleven is that, I mean, these, <laughs> I didn't understand the motivation of any of the Eleven either, really, like... You know, especially like the um, the Chinese acrobat from Cirque du Soleil. Like yeah. it just seemed very, I don't know, Steven Soderbergh says this movie is about professionalism, about people kind of like who have niche skills in a specific area and, yeah. you know, bringing them all together to kind of, you know, collaborate very much like directing a film. I was going to say yeah. as, a metaf- as a metaphor for something. Yeah. But I thought it was just a little bit, it didn't have that resonance, you know, like that possibly. It was a superficial original, kind of. Yeah, it was a know, superficial, a superficial film, I think, in a lot of ways. <laughs> yes. Like, I mean, it's okay just to watch, like, if you've got, if it's on go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Not even. Yeah. And I hadn't thought that I'd seen this film, but I think I've actually seen this film three <laughs> times and I've just completely forgotten <laughs> because I, I remembered the scene where they're at the dinner table in the in the casino and, um, you know, they get gate crashed by him. And that's about it, really. That's all I really remembered. It's so unre- why do you think this film is so po- was it was so popular maybe of the time? Was it Brad Pitt's gold? you know, blonde tips and gold sunglasses. I don't know. <laughs> they look so good. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think it's the celebrities and, um, you know, it's all like a whole bunch of celebrities, a whole bunch of guys um, just being funny and suave together. Cool. And it's very stylist, stylistic, you know, very stylish, I guess, to look at even though dated now. Um, I think maybe the scale of it as well, just the kind of the way all the pieces come together at mm. the end, a bit like um, the usual suspects. People love that kind uh, of, you know, you know, big vision and seeing it all come together in some kind of degree of difficulty at the end. But, yeah, it didn't have enough else to it to really sustain 30 years or however many years later. Not 30 years later. I'm not that old. Something <laughs> <laughs> like 15. I, yeah. loved, I loved the um, – who put that thing of Peep Show up on the oh, Facebook? Oh, I did. <laughs> that was so funny. Check out our Facebook page. Yeah, some <laughs> – some retweets of some other Ocean's Eleven <laughs> material. Do you ladies have any other questions about this film that you'd like to pose? No, not really. I really oh God, there's nothing to talk about. It's a massive double, triple, quadruple thumbs down Except, from you know what, yeah. I feel quite sad now that we have to watch two more of these films. Oh my God. <laughs> Apparently Ocean's Twelve is better. Uh, I don't know. I think, from memory, I think Julia Roberts' character has more to Oof. do in the in the second one from memory, but yeah. Well, the actual film is rich for press pause material, so I think we'll get a little bit more excited in that segment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Just always eluded me. Mm. Money is just feminine energy. You <laughs> seem so male. I don't get it. No, money, mater. The Latin. Connect with that and you're golden. Make oh. it sound pretty simple. It is. Just connecting with it. Yeah, you're catching on, Anne. 
Look, don't be one of the confused people. If you have purpose, you can just wade right through. It's like running past people who are asleep. Now moving on to Full Frontal. So we just heard this quote from Gus Delario, played by David Jacobny, and he plays a Hollywood producer who's having a chat with Linda, his masseuse, whilst on the table. In this scene, Gus presents her with a massive erection and he offers her $500 for a happy ending. And he also um, just decides to add in a little bit of auto, <laughs> auto-fixia. Auto, what is it called? Auto-erotic. Yeah, auto-erotic. You know, it says pass the plastic bag, please. And <laughs> She doesn't really know what she's getting into, but um, afterwards she does it and then runs into the bathroom and washes her hands so repulsed and ashamed. Um, so the scene reflects one of maybe the main dynamics of the film, which is, you know, the corrupting and corroding relationships between those who have power in Hollywood and those who have made it compared to those who are struggling and don't have any power. Um, And that's both in their personal lives and their careers. The plot is quite convoluted in this film, um, but it mostly pivots around Gus Delario, who's barely in it, and all of the characters are invited to his 40th birthday party, which happens at the end of the film over one day. So the film takes place over a day. Um, The ensemble are um, a couple who are in the midst of a marriage breakdown, uh, Catherine Keener and David Hyde Pierce. And there's also a masseuse, Linda, who is looking for love on the internet. Um, There's Artie, who's a director of a bad stage play called The Sound and the Fuhrer, (laughs) who's also looking for love on the internet. Um, And there's a movie within a movie called Rendezvous, which stars Blair Underwood and Julie Roberts as actors playing the lead actors in this film, Rendezvous, that David Jacovny Gustelario directs or produces, sorry. Uh, There's cameos from Brad Pitt, Terence Stamp, Jeff Garland, David Fincher. So there's a lot lot going on in this film. Um, I feel like it's Schizopolis all over again. This is, like, as you said, Carla, the one for them, one for me. This is definitely his one for me, personal experimentation and freedom to create. But this time, unlike Schizopolis, um, Stephen has made it and his cast is totally A-lister and they have agreed to Dogma 95 principles such as low budget, available light, um, digital camera, uh, short turnaround, I think it was shot in 18 days. Um, The actors do their own hair, wardrobe, makeup, and they can improvise um and ultimately this film like it's quite clever and you know there's it was entertaining once I got into it I kind of stuck with it but it really annoyed me like fundamentally (laughs) it really annoyed me um there's a sort of winking at the camera like this sort of stars are just like us type feel to it or feel to the narrative but it just felt like a massive name dropping dropping exercise um, and I feel like Steven Soderbergh at this point is having his cake and eating it too. Like he's trying to be down to earth, kind of like Judd Apatow in, in his current career, but he's just not. And I don't know, I think he, he's not really in tune with the audience in this film. I think it's all about him and his his gang, but not really, you know, thinking about the audience and entertaining the audience. And I'm not sure why that is necessary. I've got some ideas, but I thought I'd throw it over to you guys. Um, yeah, I think, I think that I would say that it was a little bit solipsistic. Um, but I don't know if that was the main problem for me because I think I could be entertained by 
that type of film. Like there are other kinds of films like that. Like Altman. Altman, Altman yeah, exactly. With, like with a, the player, Nashville yeah. even is about, you know, the internal politics. Even shortcuts. Yeah. yeah. It really reminded me of shortcuts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think that um, it made me think a little bit of Curb Your Enthusiasm as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great because I had an L.A. story. Uh, ah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So I don't mind that trope of the film within the film. I don't mind meta-references to other projects. I just think this, in this particular instance it was a little bit too self-indulgent and I felt like it wasn't – like I think Soderbergh, even though he sort of says, I'm not a writer, I'm not a writer, I think he's a great writer and I think – that this doesn't have great writing. I think it's the, the script. Yeah, was a bit it's of a just problem. not sharp. Did, did he write it though? No, I mean I think it's a lot of it's improvised, isn't it? No, it's Coleman Howe who okay. wrote Schizo. Oh no, she didn't write Schizo. She also wrote Bubble after this. Yeah, but she's an old. I think she worked on Schizopolis with them. Like she's an old friend, mm. I think, from Baton Rouge. Like she's, you know, so he brings people along with him. Yeah, I guess, but it's not a good script. You know. No, and I, well, maybe, maybe I don't know how much of it was improvised or not, but it felt very baggy to me, mm. and that it just didn't Bloody. hit yeah. anything. Like that, it, like in, you know, there were moments where sort of someone there'd be some voiceover and someone kind of like, you know, talking about something in their life, and it was like, what am I listening to? Why are they mm. talking? Like yeah. I just didn't quite hook into it. Um, that was weird editing. I think that was Sarah Flack edited this, and she's the one who did. Schizopolis yeah. mm-hmm. um, and the Limey. So she is into an experimental editing and there was a lot of that in this, like where mm-hmm. you see them go about their daily business but you hear the voice, their voiceover. Mm. Which I didn't, I mean, I didn't it, mind that, but mm. I just didn't think that I, there was enough in the script to kind of connect to make it sort of work. Yeah, mm. and I think that this goes back to what we were saying right in the very beginning that, you know, these are artefacts that, you know, almost like film school artefacts, things that we don't get to see from, Mm. you know, people who have moved on and become professional directors. And it's definitely a one-for-him thing. And I don't think it really was meant for an audience. I think it was meant for everybody that made it. Mm -hmm. And if other people see it, then that's great. I mean, it was only made for $2 million. Right. Um, But I – so then when you say it's Schizopolis again, I completely agree with you. But I had a light bulb moment with this as well to think that – you know, if I thought about another iteration of this film, and I think we're actually entering the point in his career where he is remaking his films. There's a lot of films coming up that are the same film from the 90s, again, in a different way. Mm. But I think this was more closely related to adaptation than it was to Schizopolis. And I think that this is his frustrated Kaufman film. <laughs> so he did... He won for the us, he did Out of Sight, and then he did Ocean's Eleven. And now he's like, no, nah, well, okay, I'm going to make – I didn't get to make Human Nature, so I'm going to make this. Mm-hmm. And it has a close rea- rela- closer relation to a Michelle Gondry, Charlie Kaufman-type film than anything else that he's done. Um, I actually really enjoyed it in a lot of ways. Um, I liked that it was um, inscrutable. You don't really see American films that are like that. That's true. That aren't completely spelled out mm. or I like the meta-ness of it all, um, would have, which would have been still quite new back then. Um, and I think it's just really ballsy. Like I think it's really ballsy for a white American man working in Hollywood to pull all of these people together and make this thing it's – 
it's a hugely ambitious film and but at the at the end as well he's just sort of like I'm just riffing mm-hmm. and I think that's where people can become offended like you guys you know you can be like well I still you know want to sit here and watch something that you know so well, I guess something. if you I mean I guess if you put it that way that it wasn't meant for an audience then maybe I would have accepted it yeah yeah like, yeah and I think that's um, the reason why none of us had seen it as well you know yeah because it wasn't, I, yeah. I think, <laughs> but, I mean, I guess it shows the, the respect that the actors do have for him, that they're willing to do a project like this, which is pretty out there. Julie Roberts's hair. Oh, <laughs> no, my God, that was that about? <laughs> <laughs> but that was for the film within the film, so yeah. she takes that off when she's off, yeah, like, when you yeah, see the... Yeah. You know, something that also kind of maybe put me off is that I have always been interested in Soderbergh's use of video, so he's someone who's kind of, like referenced it in his films even before he started using it to shoot films. So this is his first film shot on video and it's kind of like the the last generation of video before HD came in. Mm. So it's what's called three-chip technology um, on a pretty – he shot it on the top of the line camera for that era – and I was, like, kind of excited to see how it would look. And I thought it looked really awful. It did. It looked terrible. <laughs> it looked terrible. And and I also just think it was, like, quite an unimaginative use of video, So which which is, you know, really um, later on in his career he starts really experimenting with the aesthetics of video. And I don't know if this just wasn't good enough quality for him to be able to do that or if he – I just thought the kind of the, the device in the film of having the real-life stuff shot on video and the film stuff shot on film – I just thought it was a little bit hackneyed or something and I was a bit disappointed. So maybe that kind of alienated me from it a bit. I was like too much analysing formal stuff and mm. couldn't really get into the yes, the storyline. Yeah. I don't know. There was one really shining light for me in this film and that was Nikki Cat playing the ah. playing Hitler. In yeah, the it was the, the best. <laughs> I could have watched that for 90 minutes. <laughs> I, that was yes. hilarious. <laughs> So good. I really wished it was a behind the scenes completely from that play. That was amazing. It was, it was so amazing. Good. It was like, what was that? It was like, you know, the story of Hitler crossed with um, Entourage. <laughs> <laughs> and it was actually so forward because that could be now. That's like, it's like if Hitler was on Tinder. I keep bringing up Tinder and Soderbergh, but he's obviously quite obsessed in this space as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, these. Yeah. These enigmatic dude bros, you know, like he's yeah. this effeminate, hysterical actor <laughs> who's being playing this like double mos- macho. Yeah. He's Hitler, but he's also a player. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what <laughs> the fuck? I love so the fi- one of the final scenes where the director asks him, you know, do you want to come for a drink with us? And he's like, oh no, I've got to go um, teach my Pilates class. <laughs> <laughs> Hollywood, it's so multicultural. <laughs> oh, well, should we wrap that just, up there? Just, Is there anything just, else? I think we just have to give um, some points for how dreamy Blair Underwood is. Oh, yeah. Like even in an ironic sense, he's just so dreamy. And what about the plaits, the hair plaits? <laughs> they both had bad hair. They both had bad hair, yeah. <laughs> I also just, I perpetually, I mean, David Giacomini is such a bastard. He never ages. Like, he just looks exactly the same wherever he is. Yeah. And I just really loved him in this plot. And I loved everyone. Catherine Keener, who was just oh, she's great. the yeah. most amazing woman alive. Mm. I loved her in this. And also David Hyde Pierce, who was obviously seriously like no derogatory man, but like the campiest, faggotiest guy <laughs> ever. How does he get all these like straight 
straight marriage roles. Like, why? I guess it was too soon, too early back he then. He plays yeah. neurotic so well yeah. because of that, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. He does. Yeah. Okay. Press pause, press pause. So now press pause. What have people got? So I've got a couple of things for uh, Ocean's Eleven. So the Malloy twins who don't really even look like twins, played by, <laughs> played by two non-related brother the actors. They were originally going to be played by the Wilson brothers, oh. which I find that would have been quite So that was like Casey Affleck and... Casey Affleck and the other person other guy. I can't remember. Yeah. Uh, and then when the Wilson brothers couldn't do it, it was going to be the Coen brothers. <laughs> really? <laughs> That's this so is weird. according to Wikipedia, so I can't tell you how accurate this is. I've never seen them perform. Yeah, yeah, ex- yeah, that's actually a really good point. Uh, in 2012, Ocean's Eleven was remade into a musical in Japan. <laughs> and, of course it was. Why wouldn't you? And as we all know, or if you follow our um, Twitter or Facebook, that Ocean's Eleven is going to be remade into an all-female. Yes, that was one of mine. Remade? Yeah. yeah. That looks amazing because it's got a great cast. Yes, totally. What is it? Rihanna? Yeah. Sandra Bullock, Kate Blanchett, our Kate, Sarah Paulson, Anne Hathaway, whom I hate. Helena Bonham Carter. <laughs> Helena Bonham Carter. <laughs> I love her. I mean, Carling. Mm-hmm. And someone called Awkwafina, yeah. who I don't know. No, I don't know uh, much about her either, but she's a rapper. Clearly, we're not millennials. <laughs> I know, sorry. Someone, someone called Awkwafina. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, and just, I wanted to bring up in press pause Don Cheadle's terrible accent. Oh, oh my, my God. God. Why? 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 So it irritating. Why? So that's all my Ocean's Eleven. I've got a whole one for Full Frontal, but... Well, yeah, that, I mean, I was that was what I was going to bring up as well. Ocean's Eight, um, I'd, I'd be interested to see how they translate that dude bro kind of heist genre into the female kind of cast. Space, yeah. Like how, yeah. Done a few ti- like it's been done a few times now in comedies. Yeah. Um, there's that really funny and not much seen cop buddy film with Melissa McCarthy and Sandra Bullock. Yeah. Oh. I can't remember what it's called, but yeah. And there's also, you know, like the Ghostbusters yeah. and Bridesmaids. Yeah. Like, I feel like it's, you know, they're sort of like starting to get the idea that yeah. women no can be bros too. Yeah. Great. <laughs> can <No>. do heist. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't really, maybe I'll, I'll save this one for, for the um, discussion of for press pause for full frontal yeah all right well, i think we'll move on to yeah, full frontal yeah. yeah okay so this has got nothing to do with either film but it's more related <laughs> it's more related to me sort of whinging about the video use of video in full frontal um i do think that soderbergh has you know a really strong interest in form and experimenting with it and i love this crack from soderbergh recently about christopher nolan's film dunkirk um and he was asked if he had an opinion about whether it should be viewed in full 70 mil film or in normal 35 mil film and he replied i'm going to watch it on my phone (laughs) (laughs) which i just love so much they're actually friends um so it wasn't out of disrespect to christopher nolan but i think it just kind of flies in the face of you know hollywood or to pomposity and yeah. acknowledges that half the audience is watching movies on their phones and laptops and tablets anyway mm-hmm. so yeah so i think that um it's interesting and he's going to experiment more with other kind of formats Millions. in recent in coming times yeah. well as we know with mosaic coming up yeah yeah um and that also that he's not a purist like yeah, yeah he's just he doesn't seem pretentious in 
most ways. So, do you have anything for full frontal? No, I don't. No. The only thing that I've got here is um, I really loved this sick burn that Richard Roper, <laughs> who's a critic apparently, gave um, full frontal in a review that said. Um, it was like the special features disc of the DVD without the original movie. <laughs> Actually, I have I have two more sick burns <laughs> from the Roger Ebert website from that review that they did when it first came out. Every once in a while, perhaps as an exercise in humility, Steven Soderbergh makes a truly inexplicable film. And then at the end of the review, he says, there is a scene in Full Frontal where a character comes to a tragic end while masturbating. That could symbolise the method and fate of this film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I read that and it's true. Yeah. And I wonder if Steven Soderbergh knew that. He probably did. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so that wraps up another cult session of Club Soderberg. We'll be releasing a special Lucky Logan episode this month, so remember to listen to that as a companion piece to Ocean's Eleven. And next month we'll be back with Solaris and Ocean's Twelve. You can subscribe to Club Soderberg on Beyond Pod, tune in, iTunes, etc., or where all good podcasts are downloaded or kept stored. <laughs> um, <laughs> thanks, Captain Zeph, for hosting us and making it sound good. And please reach out to us and join our cult, fellow soda nerds. We would love to hear from you. Uh, our contacts are club at clubsodaberg.com, on Facebook, Club Soderberg, and on Twitter, at Club Soderberg. Ciao for now. Bye.